0: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me your host Gavin Phipps and I'm joined in the studio this evening by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me and Dimitri Buras from the Now Media China Post Hi, good evening Tonight we'll be discussing Han Guoyu's latest policy announcements as he continues his island-wide 2020 campaign tour plans to better regulate the food delivery industry here in Taiwan a proposal to build a high-speed rail link to Yilan from Taipei the opening of more of the island's mountain and forest. Forest areas to the public, and a Greenpeace report which slammed local retailers for their continuing use of plastic packaging. But we'll begin with this week's burning question: that being, will murder suspect Jan Tong Kai return to Taiwan to stand trial for the February 2018 murder of his girlfriend in Taipei? Chan's status, of course, was the catalyst for the months-long protests in Hong Kong, and as the government there proposed its controversial extradition law as a way for him to return to to Taiwan to face trial for the murder of his girlfriend, Poon Hui Wing, whose body was found in a suitcase dumped near Jiu Wei MRT station just in northern Taipei. Now, for time purposes, I'm going to have to condense what transpired this week quite a lot. Now, the government here initially requested that Taiwanese law enforcement officers be allowed to accompany Chan back to Taipei after he was released from prison in Hong Kong, where he had been serving a sentence for stealing money from his girlfriend's bank account after she was killed. Hong Kong authorities authorities meanwhile ignored that request and instead accused the Tsai administration of contradicting itself for on one hand demanding Chan return to Taiwan for questioning while on the other seemingly banning him from re-entry. Now Chan told reporters after being released from prison on Wednesday that he was sorry and he wanted to return to Taiwan to stand trial for the murder. Now the day later after that though Hong Kong Secretary for Justice Teresa Chung said that the territory will cooperate with Taiwan's request for evidence in the murder investigation, but that cooperation will only be forthcoming if such requests meet the necessary legal standards. And if all that wasn't enough, the Mainland Affairs Council on Thursday said and announced or apparently it just announced it, apparently it was established some time ago, but they announced it on Thursday, and they announced that a contact channel for Chan to inform them when or if he plans to return to Taiwan has been established. And apparently Hong Kong police have now agreed to inform law enforcement authorities here if he does agree to come back now headlines today said that he could come back but after the elections so brian the burning questions we took away from this week's hong kong murder saga were simply did the Tsai administration bungle the case was chan's surrender politically motivated and see will he actually return to taiwan to stand trial
1: and so this has been rather bizarre because first it was that he would return to taiwan um, or come to taiwan uh, this week, and then now it's that he might come in the future months from now. And the claim is that this is to avoid politicizing that he will not face some kind of politically motivated persecution. Um, but what's quite bizarre is the possibility that this might be a trap for the tide administration. Uh, for example, would he be traveling to Taiwan as an individual, or would this be an arrest conducted? And this raises all these questions regarding um, what is the status of Taiwan in Hong Kong law, and that, that returns to, for example, the the questions regarding this extradition bill. A possibility raised was that if he were to travel to Taiwan as an individual in his capacity as an individual, um, after stating this publicly, stating his willingness to surrender, this could be used to establish a precedent of Hong Kongers uh, saying that confessing to guilt uh, possibly through extracted means, forcibly. Extracted means, and then voluntarily going to China or Taiwan or wherever on a quote-unquote individual basis. And that was actually the fear. And so that is why Tsai, for example, stated that this would only work as mutual assistance between the Hong Kong and Taiwan police, that Taiwan would only agreed to it in that terms, and that this would be, have to be an arrest, not him traveling to Taiwan to turn himself in voluntarily, quote-unquote.
0: But did they bangle the case? Of course... The KMT came out and said, You bungled it. You should have just accepted him. Whereas the government quoted sovereignty. And then Han Guoyu, of course,
1: quoted <laughs> sovereignty. It's one of those things. I think it's just hitting the uh, ball back and forth. And so critics of the Thai administration have leveraged on this case. Han Guoyu, uh, former President Ma Tio, Annette Liu of the Formosa Alliance, uh, claiming that this is denigrating sovereignty, not taking a strong enough stance. And that is one of Thai's concerns that she cannot come off as too weak here. And so China has phrased this as actually the Thai administration uh, reversing course that originally it did not want accept him, then it said it was willing to accept him. And that, that I think it is something that actually possibly would, if it is a trap, then it, that is something to give Si's opponents political ammunition.
0: Well, of course, Dimitri, Brian made a point there about knocking the ball backwards and forwards. And of course, the Apple Daily on Thursday of this week had a cartoon of Carrie Lam and Tsai Win playing <laughs> ping-pong
2: with Chan. Well, they were maybe also wearing flip-flops because the, the administration was flip-flopping on the issue. There is nothing... Uh the Taiwan anything in Hong Kong law Um, Hong Kong and Taiwan signed some agreements but it does not extend to extraditions so today uh, without uh, further discussions between Taiwan and Hong Kong there is no way that he would come back he would ever come back to Taiwan so the government first tried to and over the last couple of months they tried to uh, to be, to, they saw maybe some benefits in playing this issue uh, about the extradition law. But today what we see is maybe actually we do need an extradition law. We need to find some regulations and Taiwan needs to reach to the Hong Kong government to solve this issue. Because it's not just related to this case only. Uh, many criminals and Taiwanese national have been arrested over the last few months and years across Southeast Asia. And they've all been sent back to Hong Kong or mainland China. And without such extradition law, how would you handle any of such cases in the future? So we haven't solved this problem, and we need to find ways to uh, to, uh, to address such issues in the future.
0: But of course, Dimitri, when criminals or wanted people in Taiwan have been arrested in other Asian countries, the Philippines, for example... Local police authorities and law enforcement officials have been allowed to go to those countries and pick up the dude or the dudette at the airport to bring them home.
2: No, not, for the not for the Taiwanese nationals, actually. Taiwanese nationals are usually sent back to China. Because of the one China policy, most of countries in the – almost all countries in the region actually have an extradition law with the Chinese government. So whoever – whenever a Taiwanese national is arrested in the Philippines, in Thailand or uh, Vietnam like recently, they are sent back to Milan, China.
1: Um, That's actually the issue, though. The question is, then, will people be receiving failed trials in China when China is willing to politically persecute political dissidents? Also, there is the previous precedent of uh, Hong Kongers committing crimes in Taiwan. Uh, There was a case several years ago involving jewelry thefts, and Hong Kong courts did not admit the evidence from Taiwan because of the fact that uh, they don't acknowledge Taiwan as a jurisdiction. On the other hand, when there are Hong Kongers that commit crimes in Hong Kong and flee to Taiwan, in the past, there was another... um, It was a murder case, and the Taiwanese government did actually send them back, and so there is actually this. There is actually a a kind of precedent for this, and so it actually. It it, the question is then, you know, if you pass an extradition law, does it open up this other can of worms, uh, in which then I mean, the Hong Kong government there is no such thing as rule of law. It is what the government says, and they will punish people, and there is this uh, already just people. Claiming that they went to China of their own free will, and this is probably actually forcefully extracted, as in the case of the Causeway Bay booksellers. And so I think that is a question, actually. The real question, one of the big questions about this case, is that if the Tsai administration allowed Chan to come to Taiwan on this basis, this could open up a precedent for Hong Kongers to be deported to China on the base of that precedent. I mean, this is this is, again, just a returning to the issues that have been at stake for the past few months with this extradition law. I mean, that is precisely what sparked these protests. And so this could actually be used as a way to, in effect, realize what the extradition bill was meant to accomplish in terms of uh, deteriorating, I think, to, uh, Hong Kong's political freedoms, without actually having to go through the process of trying to pass a bill that might be publicly opposed.
0: So a Hong Kong trap, as the Premier said. Dimitri, a Hong Kong trap? Or just a bit of a, a, bit of a mess?
2: Well, it's a be, it's a big of a mess, and it's all now because of the uh, presidential ele- election in Taiwan. It's a hot potato, and nobody wants the hot potato, which is actually very confusing. Uh, t- Taiwan tried—I don't know if you remember—a couple of uh, years ago uh, there was a hit and run uh, accident in uh, Taichung, and uh, the the person actually managed to uh, fly to the UK and try. T- Taiwan tried for years. To get that person back to ta- to Taiwan, but there is no extradition law between Taiwan and the United Kingdom, so he was they were never able to bring him back to Taiwan. So there is a need for of, for extradition laws. It's not just between uh, Taiwan and mainland China, but also a- any other countries. And without the extradition law, it doesn't mean that uh, these uh, extraditions between Hong Kong and China would stop. Whether or not there is an extradition law, you can't. You can't actually, uh, you won't be able to control and make sure that there is no way to harass somebody in Hong Kong and bring him back to men in China. But the issue here is between Hong Kong and, and between Hong Kong and Taiwan. Not yeah, the opposite.
0: Yeah, that was Mr. Zayn Dean. That was in Taipei, I believe, that accident. Anyway, Brian finally, will he return or won't he return? Mr. Chang?
1: <laughs> I think it's a good question. I think that is basically just open up to question at this point. I mean I don't think this will come up as an issue for the next few months if this is the current claim that they're waiting until after elections. And so I think it really depends on also who is the next president. If it is a KMT president, it is possible to send him to Taiwan as just saying that, oh well now Hong Kong is in power and this is a uh, it's almost China throwing a bone at him saying that he managed to negotiate the return of this murder uh, murderer
0: will he or won't he Dimitri
2: well we hope that he would come back but uh, unless uh, cross-trace relations improve somehow there is no way that we might see improvements in the situation
0: do you think he was basically talking bluster when he said he wants to turn it up he could just get on an airplane and come back you don't see that happening
2: well, it's hard to respond to this question I'm, I'm, from here. But when he said that he wanted to come back, we should have said right away. I mean, it's come possible was
1: coerced. That's the thing, though. It's, it's actually we just don't know if this is what he actually. Well, you is don't saying.
2: know either whether it was mm-hmm. he was coerced or not. I mean. <laughs>
0: Anyway, we don't know. We'll have to wait. We won't hold our breath, though, because we could all be dead by the time that he does actually come back, if he comes back at all. Anyway, moving on to the latest election news, which once again centres on KMT candidate Han Guo-Yu, who is continuing his island-wide campaign tour. Han, or rather his policy advisory team, began this week, touting the KMT 2020 candidate's plans to boost tourist numbers. Now, according to the head of Han's policy advisory team, Simon Jung, Han will increase international tourist arrivals to 15, million by 2024 and to 20 million by 2028 if he's elected for a second term. Now, Zheng says while those figures are based on plans to improve cross-strait relations in order to increase the number of Chinese visitors, he says that Han will also seek to attract more tourists from Europe, the US, Japan and South Korea. And Zheng also says that Han will promote the Tourism Bureau to a ministerial-level agency to achieve this goal. Meanwhile, Han this week also announced that it installed install flag platforms on all of Taiwan's Mountains higher than 3,000 metres if he wins January's election. Well, he did say that one day and then he came out the next day and said he didn't say that. Anyway, he he allegedly said that during a meeting in Jai County's Jongpu Township when he said, allegedly that the installation of flag platforms on the peaks will allow people to hold and attend flag raising ceremonies on them. However another proposal by hand this week for the National Palace Museum to put its entire collection on display to attract worldwide attention was dismissed by the museum itself who called it wholly unviable. So Brian, there you go, hand policy. First of all flag plinths on mountains improving cross rate ties to boost tourist numbers while also boosting tourist numbers to Europe, the US, Japan and South Korea and a plan to put all the things from the National Palace Museum on display, which he didn't mean because he was actually talking <laughs> about
1: digitising them. That's right. And so this is a, it's a, I mean, I also just question what the expenditure of a building flat platforms and then having, you know, raising flags every day and will people actually be interested in this. But it does seem like another case in which Han has offered these promises that are vaguely floating in the air and saying that I will improve things, but offering not actually just concrete proposals to do that, or very unrealistic ones. And I think that with regards to the flag platform or digitising the entire collection, of the uh, National Palace Museum, um, it's just, it just empty promises. And so, for example, increasing tourist numbers to 20 million, that would be almost doubling uh, the number of tourists coming to Taiwan within eight years. And so usually you, it, it would be very hard to do that. And what would be the effects of uh, such a rapid influx of tourism to Taiwan within eight years? Um, I think the effects would be quite large and and that's that's a question. But then I don't know if actually Han voters will be paying attention to that these are concrete uh policy platforms. So as it is he that is saying this this, this uh, these proposals.
0: Right, Dimitri and Plints on Mountains? Good well, idea, bad idea.
2: Well, it would be maybe funny. Well <laughs> we understand that uh there is an the, the tourism actually the tourism bureau actually has drawn new policies to draw more tourists to uh, mountain areas around Taiwan so well maybe there is some potential over there but it's hard now f- before the election to uh to to evaluate and 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 whether he's going to do it or not but well first he has to get elected to be able to do such things but regarding the uh, the tourism arrival well uh it would be challenging to bring that many uh tourists to taiwan but s- over the last 4 years the number of tourists to taiwan only increased by 1 million something 10 million was actually the uh benchmark 4 years ago uh before the presidential election so over the last 4 years we only f- we've only seen a 1 million increase in tourist arrival last year the chinese people i think they made 63 million uh, outbound travels uh, around the world. So there is potential there. Whether we want more Chinese tourists or not, that's for the government to decide. There is this potential. So as a presidential candidate, willing to, trying to attract more tourists tourists to Taiwan, well, that would benefit everyone, whether you're green or blue. So, well, if he succeeds, if he gets elected, why not? But we need to wait after the election to know whether he's going to do it or not.
0: What about promoting the tourism bureau to a ministerial level government agency? Do you think that would help, or just be like more jobs for the mob? So to speak.
2: Well, President Mindjo mentioned that for for the first time, at least. I think it was like four, 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 eight, eight years ago, something like that. I, the reason I don't know why why they haven't done it. That's that's really weird. Uh, there might be a reason, but we well we still don't know why. It makes a lot of sense anyway.
0: And what do you think they would do, Brian, if the Tourism Bureau became a ministerial level government agency?
1: I think it's a question because you always have these different proposals to internationalize Taiwan, such as, for example, making English in another inter- uh, official language. And then uh, where are the resources that are actually committed to doing this? I mean, would that actually meet an improvement in, in Taiwan's tourist outreach, for example, to the international world, whether that is China or, let's say, uh, Southeast Asian countries or the Western world, etc.? cetera? Um, I mean, I think there's there's very evident issues with much of the outreach Taiwan does. Um, it's very apparent just looking around the airport, for example, and seeing the misspelled signs or just uh, very strange tourist advertisements in anywhere from Times Square to um, just about anywhere else in the world. And I I think that's a question. Um, Usually with regards to tourism, I mean, yeah, looking at the past few years, it is usually changes around one million, either increases or decreases per year. And so claiming that you will increase that much tourism that quickly is a question. Um, But I think with Han, as with other KMT candidates, you do have this extreme focus on uh, gearing tourism towards China. And I think that's that's just kind of a playing a car the KMT has played many times in the past. And it's a question then um, also, actually, does the public pay attention to the fact that tourist numbers have risen despite the decrease in Chinese tourism? Because the perception I think the KMT tends to create is that a loss of Chinese tourists means a decrease in overall tourism. And so that is misleading. It's not actually what is the case. But I think that is uh, what Han and other KMT members have historically tried to to depict um, Taiwan's tourist industry as, as just being dependent on China.
2: Well, I don't think we can argue this year that the number of tourists actually increased. And, well, there is a fact that the number of Chinese tourists actually decreased and it was not compensated by tourists from Southeast Asia. Another important point is that you can't substitute tourists in saying that well the Japanese the Koreans the the uh the Chinese people spend the same amount of money in Taiwan tourists from Southeast Asia actually spend less than other tourists so that won't the numbers won't balance regarding the issue about the ministry of creating a ministry of tourism a poten- potential answer might be that actually agencies might be compete for funding and The Tourism Bureau is actually under the Ministry of Transportation and Communications. So if it becomes a full uh, tourism ministry, maybe that would need much more resources. And in this case, that might be a problem with the government budget.
0: And that's where we'll leave that topic and move on to another topic, that being the government looking to regulate food delivery providers. These of course include Uber Eats and Food Panda and several others. And this all stems from, well, there's been a couple of fatal traffic accidents recently involving food couriers, and there's also been there was a concern when we had a typhoon that clipped the northern part of the island recently when there was questions about should food delivery drivers be out delivering food to people's houses when they've ordered it on an when there's actually a typhoon. So the government is actually looking to provide greater protections to food delivery drivers, and the administration of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration this week said that the government hopes to draft more comprehensive guidelines to better protect the safety and rights of food couriers in line with the regulations governing the installation of occupational safety and health facilities. Now, apparently initial consensus has been reached with eight food delivery businesses here on the need to build safety-oriented food delivery mechanisms, provide food couriers with labour or commercial insurance, and all those strengthen related measures so dimitri this is like an uber eats uber taxi thing but it's like food delivery companies so should the government be trying to regulate these companies or deregulate the way they operate
2: well the only concern we have is that there is a need to regulate but maybe we are concerned that they might overregulate the uh the, this new sharing economy, which pretty much what this is pretty much what happened with Uber taxis a couple of uh, like two years ago. So, uh, well, there is a need for more safety. they need a need for maybe some more regulations, but they maybe should work in, uh, in hand with those delivery companies to find ways maybe to expand. To, 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 I mean, not we want them to keep on expanding their business, obviously. So, well. We need to find the right balance between regulations and and maybe uh, open economy.
1: And it's one of the questions about the so-called uh, sharing economy with the rise of Uber and other online services. Then how do you do, what set of regulations do you deal with this? Um, but I think it is the case that a lot of these companies are willing to wholly defy regulations and just incur fines in order to build a foothold in the market. I mean, this is what it, Uber has done uh, in many markets, and this has led to protests from. Uh, usually taxi drivers and, uh, uh, and so forth in, in various parts of the world. Um, and this was also the case in Taiwan that just Uber was not willing to back down and the government eventually negotiated with Uber and claiming that the government had to be on board with innovation was used by Uber and uh, supporters of Uber to justify this. Um, and it's, it's a question because the thing is that many of these workers, it's it, the discussion to date, I think, in public discourse has hinged on the fact that uh, they are contractors. They don't have insurance and so forth. They don't have these labor protections, which they would if they were former employees. And so this – but there's also the issue of just being overworked and uh, made to, for example, take extreme amount of orders in a short amount of time, um, According uh, supposedly – Uh, Workers are receiving orders every six minutes, but they have to make deliveries within 15 minutes um, in in some of these food delivery services. And so it it returns to not only protections, but just then that – do you actually just use this kind of, quote-unquote, new model just to justify um, uh, just uh, putting workers in extremely precarious positions?
0: And, of course, Dimitri, Brian used the word workers, not employees – which, of course, is the issue with these food delivery companies. Are they employees or are they workers? Because if they're only workers on contract, they don't get insurance. So, technically, I guess if you own a food delivery company, you could say, well, it was the food delivery courier's fault for accepting so many orders in such a short period of time.
2: Well, it's not because you are a contractor that you don't have the right to have an insurance. Well, the maybe authorities can make contractors and force them to have proper insurance. Whether you're an employee or if, whether you're a contractor, because of the regulations today, there is a, a loophole that would maybe allow uh, those companies to use contractors instead of uh, hiring the staff. So based on the regulation and based on maybe um, potential new reforms, we maybe could fix that loophole. But it's not because you're a contractor that you don't have the right to have an insurance. We should make contractors and force them to have an insurance. It's not the only industry that uses contractors. There are contractors everywhere. So, well, we need proper regulations to force
1: contractors to take their responsibility –
0: do you see this going away quickly, Brian, or it's going to be like the Uber saga? Probably, Uber, it's probably Uber another taxi, Uber saga. I mean, Uber just uh, saga. <laughs> that's
1: right. The, the rise of food delivery services is uh, development with the internet. And so, I mean, this is a development's here to stay, and then I think it'll, it'll probably continue to be an issue going forward, despite the fact that recently it's been flagged through these incidents.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it's not going to go away. Then, it's just think. the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have to take a short
0: break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and hot on the heels of talking about a planned extension to the high-speed rail into Pingdong from Gaoshung. Reports this week revealed that the Railway Bureau is now looking at the possibility of building a high-speed rail link between Taipei's Nangang Station and Ilan. Now, Transport Minister Lin Jia Long told members of the Legislative Transportation Committee that such a route is feasible and will solve problems with the TRA East Coast Line, resolve traffic congestion in the Shui Tunnel and National Highway No. 5. The cat sat on the and, of course, cost quite a bit of money. Lin also said, although it's considered feasible, the plan will still undergo a detailed review, and that review apparently includes issues such as engineering technology and environmental impact assessment and the financial and economic benefits of such a rail route. Now, a review of construction plans for the estimated 50km rail track show that it will cost 95 billion NT, will cut travel time from Taipei to Eland to 13 minutes, and take, well, take about a decade to complete. So, Dimitri, if you lived in Eland, would you hold your breath for this high-speed rail train?
2: Well, maybe, but the problem is that, well, I don't know if you remember the previous, the tunnels, the Suhua Highway tunnels. It took them, I think it it, it was supposed to be 10 years, so it took them almost 20 years to complete. There were many technical challenges to complete those tunnels. So, uh, the Suhua Highway, the whole project is not even completed yet, so... I'm very careful when I hear projects like that, especially in an election year. We are a few months uh, before the presidential election. So we can hear those fancy projects about, well, building this uh, high-speed rail uh, to 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 Elan. The costs are extremely high. You would barely gain uh, t- t- from, f- now I think it's about. it takes about an hour to be to go to Elan by train, right? So uh, by high-speed rail, it would take between 13 minutes and actually 30 minutes depending on the, the... There are two options in the project. So just to gain 30 minutes, I'm not really uh, excited about spending that much money on the project. Of course, one,
0: one of those options is a direct line and the other one's a bit of a roundabout route. Yes,
2: exactly, yes. So, well... Uh, we'll see also after the elections. Sorry.
0: We've been joined by Dimitri's phone, um, I sure ladies don't. and gentlemen.
2: Well, there are two, two actually two main routes, and uh, depending on the routes, the cost would maybe uh, would be between sixty-six billion uh, NT dollar or ninety-five billion NT dollar. So that's a lot of public money uh, for a project that would maybe potentially make you gain like less than uh, 30 minutes something to go to Elan. So I hope that they will really consider this project after the election when they see uh, proper uh, envir- environmental impact assessment.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's right. And I, I think that's absolutely right, just that this always comes up before elections. And, and offering these minor conveniences to people is used as a way to try to win votes. Um and that is also a question, does, do you actually need this in Elan And actually, what would the impact of this be? Uh, for example, Elan the the relation of the city to uh, the town to Taipei would change drastically if it actually commuting time is that short. It would become somewhat like a commuter suburb possibly of Taipei and what the effects on Elan um, be in terms of uh, local economy, um, in terms of environmental impact and so forth. And is it actually something that people need? Um, and it's, it's one of these recurring stories, though, I think, that comes up in Taiwanese politics, that uh, do you actually build these projects? Do you build a, a railway when you already have, for example, buses somewhere? Or um, do you extend a railway and so forth? This, this is a kind of returning, uh, um, something you hear about once in a while. Um,
0: and, of course, Dimitri, it leads us to the question, they build the extension to Pingdong and then they build the extension to Ilan. And what about the people that live in Hualien and Taidong? Do they get a high-speed rail?
2: Well, I don't think they will get it. They will never get it. Maybe next election they will also come up with a new plan to go uh, round the round the island.
1: And I think just with any infrastructure in Taiwan, you'll just hear have delay after delay after delay, and so it's it's not unusual to have mul- multiple decades devoted to a project and so forth.
2: Well, we shouldn't blame the Taiwanese government for all that anyway. Even the Chinese government does that. Well, I think they're planning uh, a bridge between mainland China and Jinmen. So. Well, we hear of these fancy projects all the time, and then we should wait and see, I think.
0: I believe it takes 30 minutes to drive in good, right. good traffic, Taipei to Elan, 30 it's, minutes. It
1: seems about 30 minutes, and so I also just wonder, um, I mean, maybe not everyone has cars, however, it's already easy to, trans- to move back and forth between Elan and Taipei.
0: Because you end up in the Shinny Road area.
1: That's right, and and there station. are people that are already com- there are quite a lot of people that already commute to Taipei from from Elan, and so is it absolutely necessary? It might be more convenient, but it might not be absolutely necessary.
0: Would you take it to, to Elan?
2: Oh, lovely, yes, I would. But <clears throat> if the tourists, if the, the tourists don't come to, 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 to Taiwan, uh, you need they. I think they were saying in that at peak hours they expect to have eighteen thousand travelers uh, on the train per hour per hour on peak hours but peak hours it's just a couple hours every year most of the time you would have like a few hundred people taking the train to elan during the day so to 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 build a project like that you need to make sure that the tourists will be coming first
1: and this also a project that if you build it and then nobody uses it you will also receive a lot of blowback exactly <laughs>
2: And, of course, Dimitri mentioned
0: the the, the geological problems between, of course, Taipa and Elia, and there's a large mountain range. Yeah. Of course, they had major problems digging the tunnel for the freeway.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right, and so it's uh, it's a question I think regarding particularly the east coast that there are geographic challenges to building transportation. I mean, that's historically why I think transportation is much more developed over Taiwan's western coast. Um, people do on the eastern coast sometimes will want um, easier transport because of that. It is it is uh, it might make people's lives more convenient, um, and it might actually it might actually some people will find it useful in terms of commuting to Taipei. But um, overall, I mean, is it enough? Is it is it justified in terms of expenditure?
0: And we'll move on, and we talked about mountains earlier with Mr. Hang Yu and his flag plinths, but we'll return to mountains now. This involving Premier Su-Jung Chung, who on Monday of this week announced that all of Taiwan's mountain and forest areas not classified as national security sites or conservation areas will be open to the public. And according to the Premier, the opening of the remote areas means that people will no longer be subject to evaluations of their mountain climbing experience prior to being allowed to enter the mountain and forest trail areas. However, the members of the public who want to go to these areas will apparently still need to apply for permission online, of course, you do that, at least five days before arriving in the areas they wish to walk up and down around. And while the public will now be allowed to enter some of the areas long deemed to be off-limits, the Forestry Bureau apparently is still overseeing and restricting motor vehicle access to these areas. Now, the Cabinet says it hopes to renovate existing facilities and build new ones in the opened-up mountain and forest areas over the next five years to Accommodate the hopeful increase in visitor numbers. So, Brian, increases in visitor numbers in mountain areas, good thing on paper, but maybe not such a good thing in reality when you discover how much garbage has been scattered around <laughs> these once pristine mountains.
1: And also there are concerns about accidents taking place now that it is easier to go to these places. Uh, I mean, the government also stated that it would not be responsible for accidents, would not be compensating people for accidents that take place in these, uh, in, because of these new areas opened up. Um, but it does seem like a public relation move to, uh, by the Tsai administration before elections to say that we have opened up something new, we've uh, accomplished something and therefore we can bring in more tourists and it's more easily accessible for now regular Taiwanese if they want to go explore. Nature and see things and, and so forth. Um, but it is also a question that just, again, environmental impact.
2: Well, there is a there is a potential for the the, the tourism industry and uh, the, the the government, the tourist bureau made a proper assessment of the potential of these areas, and that's why they're coming up with these new policies. Now, there is a uh, I think for Ushan, if you want to climb up Ushan, there is a, a online system that allows you to register and maybe so they can keep track of of who is, goes there and make sure that there aren't too many people at the same time on the trail. So, I think with uh, uh, proper, with a proper system, that would maybe make the whole journey more convenient and safe. And, well, if there is potential, and uh, we've seen a lot of improvement in tourism facilities around the island. So why not? We should maybe move forward with that.
0: But, Dimitri, do you think it's a good idea to open certain mountain areas up, which, of course could lead to problems because of course, every time there's a typhoon we hear about a bunch of clowns going out there two days before the typhoon and the next thing we see are rescue helicopters and people yomping around the bush trying to get them out
2: that's why the the online registration system is very important so that to warn people and make sure they just uh, go to these places in a proper and safe way but then
0: you're relying on the intelligence of people. Right? Uh, I also wonder about that. <laughs> that's, that's risky.
2: <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I, it's also one of those things that then, if there is an accident, for example, a high-profile accident, then this could actually lead to blowback um, if the system doesn't work out and so forth. And so, I think a lot of it depends on how it's rolled out and whether it's uh, whether it works as smoothly as, as is claimed or whether it actually ends up just being an inefficient system, um, difficult to use, or uh, in which there's actually it's actually mismanaged and so forth. And so, I think um, it could go either way.
0: And talking of going either way, we'll go in a completely different direction now, or partly because we're going to be talking about nasty things polluting the environment. And Greenpeace this week said nine of Taiwan's major retail outlets are failing to perform satisfactorily in terms of eliminating the use of plastic packaging. Now, according to a report released by the Environmental Organization on Tuesday, although hypermarkets and convenience stores are carrying out sporadic programs to reduce plastic use, they have no comprehensive plan for ceasing the use of such packaging. Now, Greenpeace Taiwan campaigner Zhang Kai-ting said that retailers need to draw up a schedule for phasing out plastic packaging, better communicate with their customers to promote reusable packaging, and also implement some systematic plans. Now, all this comes only months after Greenpeace announced that 77% of the products sold in retail outlets here in Taiwan are packaged in plastic. So, Dimitri, plastic packaging, too much of it? And how should these superstores and big retail outlets deal with it
2: well there are two things number one taiwan is a major production producer of plastic products and second there is a need of plastic especially in the food industry because you can't uh you you can't expose products that are not wrapped in plastics for food safety reasons the problem we have now is how we reuse reduce and maybe recycle the plastic we have so well maybe there is potential for uh, for improvement and uh, increase the recycling of plastics but i don't think we will ever phase out all the plastic that's not possible in the food industry
1: uh, so the question then is timeline. And also, I think another question which should be raised is, is how do we define phasing out plastic? Um, we talked about, for example, the plastic traw ban for a very long time. And then, uh, for example, in 7-Elevens, they started rolling out cups that were actually using more plastic than they would be saved if you remove the straw. And so we have this issue, actually, of, of definitions. Um, and it is also true that there are many places, I think, that usually skirt these bans, um, oftentimes smaller shops, um, actually even some chain stores in that way. Um, so it is it is I think it is a valid criticism to, to raise this question regarding uh, how do you phase things out, um, also what definitions do you adhere to in terms of, of reducing plastic. And sometimes, for example, actually in terms of uh, ecological conservation, it's not always... It sometimes seems counterintuitive. It actually, um, it's not just removing the straws. For example, it actually you do have to look again at just how much plastic is being used or how much resource being consumed in producing a cup. And so it's 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 one of those questions.
2: Well, uh, as a major producer of plastic, uh, we all we hope that actually plastic can be reused and maybe uh, through the circular economy to find ways to uh, value the plastic waste in a better way, so that producers and Produce reused recycled plastics in their uh, in their um, in their production. That that's that's
1: the best we can hope.
0: Of course, we did have the plastic bag ban. Um, That's right. You can still buy them though. That's right. Giving them free. Yeah, that lasted a long time. The plastic bag ban.
1: Mm, that's right, and so just attempts to uh, uh, um, use policy to change consumer behavior sometimes can be difficult, um, but yeah i think that, I think that's right that just it just isn't just removing plastic, it is also uh, changing exi- existing practices regarding recycling uh, plastic and so I think uh, it, I think it is not just one or the other actually one needs to discuss both issues
0: and Dimitri, how do you think that the consumers could be sort of persuaded to ditch their plastic
1: well
2: d- I think they would be maybe interested if we can, they could maybe value the plastic they collect because we actually uh, collect a lot of the soft plastics all the time. Uh, and we actually go and recycle that plastic. So if we could maybe value and get points or reward system that would value recycling, that would potentially also uh, entice more people to do recycling.
1: And one way is to uh, similar with the plastic bag bans or, or straws, for example, just uh, introducing, um, making you have to pay for uh, using plastic in a way that hopefully de- incentivizes uh, companies from actually using as so much plastic. And that's, that's another way about it. Um, but I think again, just for example, uh, one does have very high profile uh, conservation, for example, events. Uh, one has pl- uh, cleanups of beaches, for example, in which one actually produces more plastic because of the drinks being sold uh, at this event than is is being is being actually removed that's something that happened recently Um, so I think it's actually just being attempted what is actually uh, how much resource you are using and how you're using it Um, not just for example token efforts to claim that you're um, recycling and so forth but not actually um, saving
0: anything at all you're not doing anything at all And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Hey. As well as Dimitri Burias and his musical
2: phone. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows.